Start your morning with the CNN Daily News Briefing. In just three minutes, we'll tell you about the stories that are making headlines around the world. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play the CNN Daily News Briefing or find us in your favorite podcast app. Good evening. We begin tonight in a far different place than we left you last night, and that is a good thing, plain and simple. Iran signaled that its missile strike on two bases in Iraq housing U.S. forces was the limit of their response, the American killing of General Qasem Soleimani. They apparently offered a way out, and this morning President Trump took it. Iran appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. No American or Iraqi lives were lost because of the precautions taken, the dispersal of forces, and an early warning system that worked very well. I salute the incredible skill and courage of America's men and women in uniform. This is obviously a very welcome development, no matter where you might stand politically or how you view America's role in the Middle East. Last night, we were staring into the abyss. Tonight, we aren't. That said, if, in fact, President Trump took the off-ramp here, the question remains, was it from a highway that he himself built with his decision to kill General Soleimani, a highway he didn't need to build? The administration has yet to publicly offer evidence to support his claim that the killing stopped imminent attacks on Americans. They did officially brief members of Congress today behind closed doors, but from the sound of it, for some members, Republican and Democratic, it did not go well. Without commenting on content, my reaction to this briefing was it was sophomoric and utterly unconvincing. And I believe more than ever, uh, the Congress needs to act to protect the constitutional uh, provisions about war and peace. What can you say about the rationale for the strike on Soleimani and also the idea of whether there were imminent threats? Uh, I believe there was no rationale that could could pass a graduate school thesis test. Um, I, 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 I was, well, utterly unpersuaded about any evidence about the imminence of a threat that was new or, or compelling. Well, quite a few Republicans differ with Congressman Connolly's assessment. Senator Lindsey Graham, for one, who said, quote, I find this whole idea that somehow the national security team did not have a good basis to hit this guy ridiculous. Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee, though, called the briefing, quote, unacceptable, disgraceful and very insulting. Again, those are Senator Mike Lee's words, Republican Senator Mike Lee. Now he said at the outset he supports President Trump. And then he said this. I had hoped and expected to receive more information outlining the legal, factual, and moral justification for the attack. I was left somewhat unsatisfied on that front. Uh, the briefing lasted only 75 minutes, whereupon our briefers left. This, however, is not the biggest problem I have with the briefing, which I would add was probably the worst briefing I've seen, at least on a military issue, in the nine years I've served in the United States Senate. What I found so distressing about that briefing was that symptoms of overactive bladder or OAB may be bothersome. As many as 46 million Americans 40 years of age or older have reported symptoms of OAB. I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. Felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. 
Listen in at oabmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirabegron. Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Mirbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Mirbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat, or tongue, or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Mirbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thioridazine, melaril, and melaril S, flecainide, tambacore, propafenone, rhythmol, digoxin, linoxin, or solifenacin succinate vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness, and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387. Hear real stories about how Mirbetric can help OAB symptoms at oabmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. That's oabmed.com. One of the messages we received from the briefers was... Do not debate, do not discuss the issue of the appropriateness of further military intervention against Iran. And that if you do, you'll be emboldening Iran. Now, in a moment, we'll be joined by another lawmaker who was in the room, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. This all comes with the House set to vote tomorrow on a resolution that would force President Trump to end hostilities against Iran without congressional authorization which Senator Lee now says he has not seen but is open to considering, which is not to say there's widespread bipartisan skepticism of the intelligence. Senator Lee and his colleague Rand Paul are outliers within the GOP. Mostly there's bipartisan division, not unity or even rough consensus on how the president is handling this. In part, that's due to how polarized the country is now. But keep in mind, it's not like President Trump was trying to unify the country in his address today when he blamed much of the crisis on President Obama. Iran's hostilities substantially increased after the foolish Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2013. And they were given $150 billion, not to mention $1.8 billion in cash. Then Iran went on a terrorist spree, funded by the money from the deal, and created hell in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The missiles fired last night at us and our allies were paid for with the funds made available by the last administration. Well, just as a factual matter, what the president said there is not correct. The money was actually Iranian money for U.S. weapons frozen in the late 1970s, which was unfrozen under the nuclear deal, which the president's own intelligence officials say Iranians were abiding by which does not mean that they can be trusted now or that General Soleimani wasn't a brutal killer with American blood on his hands. It doesn't mean either that there wasn't a good reason to kill him or that future military action against Iran wouldn't be justified. It only means that President Trump had a chance today, a chance to keep it between the lines, between the lines and some really serious stuff. But for some reason, he chose to paint outside those lines. We'll talk more about it in just a moment. First, though, CNN's Jim Acosta has some late new reporting on how last night unfolded behind the scenes. Jim, talk more about what you're learning about how close the U.S. came to a counterattack last night. Yeah, Anderson, talking to my sources and also sources talking to my colleague Pam Brown and also to my colleague Barbara Starver at the Pentagon, uh, we're getting an understanding as to what was going on behind the scenes as the president was weighing whether or not to retaliate against Iran last night, we're told by administration officials that, yes, uh, the president was considering striking back at Iran, 
uh, when these missiles were fired, but uh, they were waiting to see what the casualties looked like on the ground. Uh, and the other thing uh, that was uh, happening behind the scenes, Anderson, is that Iran was using these back channels. They were going through intermediaries uh, like the government of Switzerland and some other countries, as many as three countries from what we understand, to essentially tell the U.S., tell the Trump administration that they were essentially done for the night. And based on that information coming into the White House, the president decided to pull back uh, and not uh, launch a counterattack, which obviously could have had devastating consequences. Now, getting back to uh, what you were just saying a few moments ago about these senators coming out of this uh, briefing with administration officials like Senator Mike Lee, who was just hot uh, coming out of that meeting, I will tell you, I talked to a Republican source familiar with this, this briefing uh, to senators who said that the posture, the attitude coming from the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and other administration officials who were briefing these senators was essentially, don't question what we're doing. Uh, don't second guess what we're doing. And obviously, that doesn't go over well with senators. And was the White House surprised at all about the size and scope of the Iranian attack? It, it, it sounds that way, Anderson. And one of the things that we're picking up on this evening, and I, I think it's fascinating, is that both the Joint Chiefs Chairman, uh, Mark Milley, and the Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, are both saying publicly this evening uh, that they agree with this assessment that Iran was actually trying to uh, not only destroy property at these bases, but kill U.S. personnel. We were hearing from our sources, CNN was hearing from our sources earlier in the day, there were some administration officials saying, well, perhaps the Iranians had intentionally missed so as not to draw a counterattack from the U.S. But from what we're hearing over at the Pentagon, uh, there were top officials, uh, including the Joint Chiefs chairman, uh, who were very much convinced that the Iranians were trying to kill Americans in this attack. And so it may have been a, an amazing stroke of luck uh, that no American service members were killed, mm. Anderson. Uh, Jim McCostum, thanks very much. More now on the briefing. As we mentioned, Senator Chris Murphy sat in on it. He joins us now. Senator Murphy, you, you heard from Senator Lee earlier. He also called the briefing today, quote, unacceptable, disgraceful, very insulting. I'm wondering how you would characterize it. Uh, I mean, I don't know that I'd use all the same words, but uh, it was fairly extraordinary to hear the administration tell Congress uh, that we can't debate war and peace. Uh, in fact, the founding fathers, as Mike Lee pointed out, vested that power solely in the legislative branch. And, you know, this idea is regularly trotted out by the administration. Um, it was echoed by Mitch McConnell on the floor of the Senate yesterday that if you're criticizing the administration's policy when it comes to war overseas, that you're somehow doing damage to the country or to our troops. That's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I'm not going to let this country slide into war again like we did in 2003 when the Bush administration bullied opponents of that war into silence. The other problem, though, and frankly, the bigger problem with the briefing today uh, was that um, there was no evidence of an uh, imminent uh, and specific threat. Uh, and I can't get into the details, uh, but that was fairly shocking to many of us, uh, the lack of evidence of an actual imminent uh, immediate threat. Um, because without that, uh, the president doesn't have the authority to take military action without coming to Congress first. The president uh, over the, in the past several days has said that, that uh, they were planning a, a, a very major attack. I believe that was the phrase he used at, at, at one time in a, in a speech. Can you say if, if that is accurate or not? 
Well, I think a lot of us worried when the uh, explanations shifted over the weekend. Some administration officials were using the word imminent. Others weren't. Some people said it was days. Others said it was weeks. I mean, that all started to sound a little suspicious if there was a, a set of facts that underlied this decision. Um, no, Anderson, I can't get into the details, but I can definitively say that um, there was not evidence presented of an imminent attack. Uh, and um, of course, that's what the administration was telling us all weekend. And, you know, when you're not straight with the American people uh, about why you go to war, uh, about why you risk American lives, um, it's devastating to the credibility of uh, the federal government, of the president, uh, and, you know, ultimately of Congress as well. And so that's why many of us were very worried coming out of that briefing today. Can you, can you explain, uh, you know, Michael Lee was saying that in, you know, the nine years he's, he's you know, been, in, uh, been on Capitol Hill, he's never seen a briefing as bad as this. What was so different about it? Was it, I mean, were you able to ask questions? Uh, did you have questions answered? Was it just not specific? Um, can you elaborate at all? Yeah, I mean, I've been in a lot of very bad briefings, so uh, I'm not sure where I would rank this one. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was insufficient, first of all, in the sense that we've waited six days to get a briefing. All 100 senators were in that room, as far as I know. And the administration stayed there for an hour and 15 minutes and then got up and left. I mean, only about 15 senators got to ask questions and they apparently had to be somewhere else. I mean, I'm sorry, that's not taking your responsibility seriously to report to Congress if you can only give all 100 senators uh, about 75 minutes. Um, and then, you know, the, the lack of specific details around the threat um, to me, I think, was a signal that the intelligence doesn't exist. Um, but the alternative isn't really helpful either, that they had the intelligence and they're not telling us. Um, so, yeah, it was insufficient um, from a number of standpoints. And, you know, I can see why both Republicans and Democrats are walking out of that briefing, um, you know, angry. Um, we mentioned the, the divide that we've seen among some Republicans, basically uh, Rand Paul and, and Mike Lee. I want to play something that Senator Lindsey Graham said about Senator Lee and uh, Senator Rand, uh, Rand Paul being dissatisfied with the security briefing. So you'll hear Senator Graham first, then Senator Paul's response to him on, on Will Plitzer's program. I think they're overreacting, quite frankly. Go debate all you want to. I'm going to debate you. <laughs> Trust me, I'm going, to, I'm going to let people know that at this moment in time, to play this game with the poor war powers, that which I think is unconstitutional, is that whether you mean to or not, you're empowering the enemy. I know you don't mean to, but we live in the real world here. So debate all you want. This is a constitutional democracy, but get ready for a lively debate. You know, I think it's sad when people have this fake sort of drape of patriotism and anybody that disagrees with them is not a patriot. He believes in this unitary theory of the executive that presidents can do whatever they want. The only way you can stop them is by defunding a war. That's not what our founding fathers said. It's not what the Constitution says. And he insults the Constitution, our founding fathers, and what we do stand for in this republic by making light of it and accusing people of lacking patriotism, I think that's a low uh, gutter uh, type of response. Yeah, it sounds, uh, Senator Murphy, like, like um, uh, that Lindsey Graham was kind of re echoing the message that you were told in the briefing about don't debate this. 
Yeah, that's right. And it's just a ridiculous argument that gets trotted out every time that the hawks, uh, the neoconservatives, want to go to war. They tell us that if you criticize our path to war, that you're being unpatriotic. I mean, frankly, um, that's insulting. Uh, and it belies the fact that our troops are actually fighting for us and protecting us overseas in order to protect our right to disagree with each other and to speak our minds. The reason, though, uh, Anderson, that we want the ability to debate this is because many of us think that this was um, a very bad decision to escalate the war in a way that is already um, accrued to the detriment of U.S. national security. I mean, let's just be, be honest about the fact that today Iran has restarted its nuclear program on their way to a potential nuclear weapon. Our troops are getting kicked out of Iraq. The counter-ISIS mission has stopped. Um, all of that is a consequence of what happened on Thursday. And so we want the chance to debate this in the United States Congress because we believe, as the people's representatives, we need to write a policy that has gone very wrong. Mm. Senator Murphy, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Coming Thanks. Up, coming up next, two top former White House advisors on today's presidential address and why this president cannot seem to or not interested in uniting the country, even in a moment like this. Later, an airliner goes down in Tehran at the height of the crisis. Tonight, the growing questions, deeply troubling questions about what exactly caused that airliner to go down. America's getting back to work. In this new economy, your business needs every advantage to succeed. You need to be smart. And smart companies run on the world's number one cloud business system, NetSuite by Oracle. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over every part of your business, your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need, all in one place. Whether you're doing a million in sales or hundreds of millions, NetSuite lets you expertly keep track of every penny. It gives you the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Over 20,000 companies trust NetSuite to make it happen. Make yours one of them. Learn more by visiting netsuite.com ac360. From there, you can schedule a tour of NetSuite and get their free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. It's chock full of the top strategies executives are using as America reopens for business. Get your free guide and product tour now at netsuite.com ac360. Whether someone made it happen or was an accident. Breaking news tonight, a senator who spoke with the president telling us the president appeared ready to launch a counterattack if there had been even one American casualty. Also, a source telling us that Iran reached out through at least three back channels to signal that the strike they launched was the only one. The president did not speak of either uh, in his address today. He did talk about things that everyone can agree on, namely that what appeared to be a march to war now seems to be on hold. However, he didn't leave it there. He attacked President Obama. In fact, he criticized all presidents going back to 1979. He also said uh, little to persuade anyone who didn't already support him that the confrontation with Iran is something worth rallying behind, which is what presidents traditionally do. It's also, ironically, what presidents have traditionally had to do less of. That's because in a crisis, Americans tend to rally behind any president in any party until now. Our next guest, David Frum, has a column on the subject today in The Atlantic. He writes, quote, the United States finds itself in the dangerous situation of having a president in power but without authority. David Frum also famously helped craft President George W. Bush's State of the Union address that became known as the Axis of Evil speech, the members being Iraq, North Korea, and Iran. Joining us as well tonight, another distinguished White House senior advisor, David Axrod, who served in the Obama administration. David Axrod, just looking at the president's speech this morning, clearly not rushed. His team had all night to prepare, key military officials standing there behind him. How do you think he handled the moment? Well, look, uh, it was... Uh, uh, this was a moment when you had a nation that was uh, on war footing 
and he was there to deliver good news, which was he was taking, we were taking a step back. Both sides were taking a step back. It was a moment for national solidarity and relief, uh, and he could not refrain from uh, taking shots at his predecessors, and particularly President Obama. We become accustomed to this. The question is why? Why does he do that? I think he sees some political advantage uh, to flaying Obama any chance he gets. And there may be some sense of envy because Obama left as a uh, highly regarded president. And, you know, Donald Trump's about every, uh, ratings are everything for Donald Trump. And I think it bothers him. And he feels like he needs to tear uh, his predecessor down. But it was a missed opportunity uh, on a day when he should have had nothing but good news for the American people. David Frum, I'm trying to think of instances where this president has really reached out to people who did not vote for him um, or may not have voted for him. And, and I can't really think of many. In your piece in The Atlantic today, you say, quote, a president who writes off half the country can't expect to garner support from a crisis of his own making. I mean, this, this president has insulted the state of California. He says he hates the state of New York. He says that Baltimore is a rodent and rat-infested mess. He said that Chicago is a disgrace to the nation. He has described Atlanta as a disgrace to the nation. Um, and just in the immediate aftermath of the targeted killing of, of General Soleimani, uh, the president retweeted one of his most fervent supporters who said that the Democratic leadership in Congress were the equivalent of Iranian terrorists. Uh, the person who's jockeying uh, for the job of replacing Mike Pence as his running mate in 2020, uh, uh, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley um, said that, that Democrats mourn the death of um, Soleimani, which no Democrat has done. And when challenged on that, said, well, they've regretted it. And in fact, the two people who have most conspicuously regretted it are members of the president's party, uh, Rand Paul and President Trump's favorite TV host, uh, Tucker Carlson. So the president, it, it has never even occurred to him that this is part of his job. He thinks his job is to put on makeup, raise his chin, go on TV, and say things. And then the people should applaud. And if they don't, it's their fault and not his fault. David Axelrod, I mean, we mentioned, you know, Senator Mike Lee today is, you know, saying that the closed-door uh, Senate briefing was un-American and completely unacceptable, given that the administration suggests that Congress shouldn't have a role in approving Iran military action and essentially shouldn't debate this. Were you surprised to see him and Senator Rand Paul speak yeah. out. I mean, Lindsey Graham sort of dismissed them as libertarians uh, and, out, you know, essentially outliers. Look, the administration's... I'm someone well, who's... Uh, sorry, Ben. Go, go to David's. Yeah, David Axelrod, go ahead, and then uh, we'll get David in. No, no, look, Bo, I, I think if you were going to... Uh, if you were going to identify two members of the Republican caucus who were likely to dissent, uh, it would be them. But, uh, they, they, look, they raised an important... Uh, point, which is that uh, there are constitutionally shared powers here. The Congress does have responsibilities, uh, and they ought to be treated uh, with uh, respect. And 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 you know, one of the re you talk about building uh, solidarity in the country, but it's also important to build solidarity for governing purposes and bringing in the other branch, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, and sharing the burden of these decisions uh, is an important part of that. And it's a, a huge mistake to uh, treat the Congress as they're treating the Congress here. David, from, I mean, on that point, it is remarkable to think, you know, having experienced what we all experienced uh, in the run-up to the Iraq war in terms of uh, the, the, the use of intelligence and just the lies that subsequently have been revealed about uh, what, you know, the public has been told about the war in Afghanistan for, for quite some time. 
um, which you know revealed in the New York Times recently an extraordinary history of lies, just as it was in the Vietnam War. The fact that Lindsey Graham is arguing, you know, that old argument of well, just even discussing this is giving comfort to the enemy. I mean, that's a that's a line that's been used time and time again for decades. Look, General Soleimani is a blood-soaked murderer. Uh, no one regrets his death, and his death was overdue, and there's no way he was going to die peacefully, and he shouldn't have died peacefully. That said, the administration's account, you don't have to know anything about um, the intelligence. It's obviously not true. Um, it's, look, one of two things are true. If, if the person, they, they are claiming this is a person who's at the top of the Iranian chain of command, and also that there is an imminent attack. If the attack is imminent, killing the guy at the top of the chain of command doesn't stop it. If the United States had been able to kill Osama bin Laden two days before 9-11, that wouldn't have stopped 9-11. The operation was underway. If killing the guy at the top of, chain of, of the chain of command can stop the operation, the operation is by definition not imminent. It's still in the planning mm -hmm. phase. So, so their explanation can't be true. That doesn't mean that the decision was wrong, but given if, if you believe the, the, in the decision, you should give a truthful explanation for it, including the, that this man owed the United States a blood debt. That would be an answer that many Americans would accept. Mm. But what they're saying now, you can't accept it because it's obviously not true. Yeah. David from David Axrod, appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, a live report from Iraq where there was action in Baghdad today. The latest on that in a moment. Hours after President Trump told the nation that, quote, Iran appears to be standing down, unquote, the Iraqi military says two rockets landed in the green zone of Baghdad, which houses the U.S. embassy. No casualties reported. The CNN team in Baghdad says it heard sirens from inside the green zone, as well as two explosions. We should note that there have been numerous rocket attacks in the area in recent months, even before the killing of Qasem Soleimani, and it's not exactly clear who fired the rockets. CNN's Clarissa Award is in uh, Erbil, the northern uh, Kurdish region of Iraq, near where some of last night's missiles struck. So, uh, Clarissa, talk about the situation there tonight. Well, Anderson, it's very quiet here tonight, but I have to say it was extremely eerie to be flying in to Erbil at night. Uh, the airport was essentially deserted. Ours was one of the only flights that was not canceled because one of the missiles that fell in Erbil actually landed within the perimeter of the airport. This is obviously extremely important place strategically for the U.S. It is the heart of the fight against ISIS. A lot of special forces operatives working in and around this area. That fight is now frozen. But we did notice in our hotel uh, roughly 100, if not more, U.S. military contractors. They had essentially been evacuated from places like Baghdad, also from the Balad Air Base, amid fears of continuing attacks. The assumption was that Erbil was the safe place to send people. But Iran sending a powerful message last night that no place is essentially beyond the reach or completely secure uh, from the reach of their missiles, Anderson. You, you know, you talked about this as being kind of frozen. Uh, obviously, things can, can uh, unfortunately thaw out quite quickly. There are still, I mean, it's, it, you can't understate the, the tensions between the United States and, and Iran that still exist. 
I, and absolutely, the tensions are there, and I think you're going to continue to see them exploited, particularly through the situation here in Iraq. This is an easy move for Iran going forward to try to play on the divisions between Iraqis and the U.S. You know, you mentioned before that we've seen a lot of rockets go into the green zone, and we have. But given the events that have transpired in the last 24 hours, it's hard not to see this through the prism of essentially passions running high with supporters of the various Shia militias that are loyal to Iran. They're looking for revenge. Uh, they feel anger. They feel resentment. They want to see U.S. forces leave. And that is what Iran has ultimately said its real goal here is. This these missiles last night were essentially a strategic gesture to show strength, to sh save face. But their real goal, according to their own uh, rhetoric, is to try to push U.S. forces out of this region entirely. That is not going to be a short-term perspective, Anderson. That could take years. And believe me, they are willing to play the long game mm. here. Clarissa Ward, uh, thank you. Be careful. For more on the standoff with Iran, the president's use of national security-related intelligence, I want to bring in Leon Panetta. Mr. Panetta served as both CIA director and defense secretary under President Obama. Secretary Panetta, first of all, uh, your reaction to the administration's overall handling so far of the Iranian missile strike and the pushback from some members of Congress? I, Anderson, uh, I, I think it's very difficult to try to understand what is the overall uh, strategy of this administration in the Middle East? Uh, it, it's very confused. Uh, the president has uh, talked on both sides of the fence, uh, talked about withdrawing from the Middle East, talked about forever wars, talked about uh, the need to let those countries deal with their own problems. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we're now building up our forces in the Middle East, uh, and uh, we are virtually on continue to be on the brink of war uh, in that area. I, I just think uh, that the handling of this situation has been very confusing. Uh, the justification for why they went after Soleimani has been uh, mixed. Uh, there have been different reasons presented. Uh, there's no clear evidence of an imminent threat uh, that was involved here. And I think all of that uh, raises a, a lot of questions about just exactly how we are going to proceed with regards to this crisis in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, I, I'm just not clear on what the administration's policy is to, to Iran. I mean, the, there's, clearly there were some in the administration, Bolton and perhaps Pompeo, who wanted and may still want regime change. Um, obviously, the president has talked about getting troops out of Syria, out of Iraq. Um, is it clear to you that there is a policy? You know, I, th I, think, uh, I think if there's uh, any history regarding the wars in the 21st century is that they've come about uh, because of miscalculations, of poor judgment, of uh, not understanding the intelligence, and somehow assuming that power alone could uh, resolve these issues. Uh, that's the history of the wars we've been in, and we're, we're in the process of repeating all of those same mistakes now. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think the president uh, tried essentially to bully Iran uh, into, into negotiations with the United States. Uh, and Iran, to some extent, try, is trying to bully uh, this president to get out of the Middle East. Uh, both have failed. Uh, and uh, yet, uh, you know, I don't see much changing, although we had a pause 
uh, last night, and thank God for that uh, in terms of whether or not we were going to go to war. Uh, I don't see anything changing right now in the relationship between the United States and Iran, and that spells trouble for the future. How concerning is it that the administration is essentially telling the members of the Senate, telling a room full of all the senators, don't discuss this, don't debate this, uh, because it's, it's emboldening an enemy? I, in my experience, uh, that's unheard of. Uh, if you're going to go and brief uh, the Senate uh, with regards to a national security issue, uh, your job is to present the truth to, to that group of senators uh, and let them know exactly uh, what has happened uh, and the justification for any action that took place. Uh, to then go there and lecture a group of senators about uh, what they should or should not say or, or what they should or should not do uh, is asking for trouble. And you heard that trouble today uh, with the senators who came out and reacted to that briefing. Uh, the purpose of those briefings is to build support uh, with, with the Senate and with the Congress. Uh, you're in the process of, uh, uh, of being on the brink of some kind of conflict in, in the Middle East. You need the support of the Congress uh, if the United States is going to take any steps uh, in that part of the world. And not to bring the Senate onto your side, but instead criticize them for opening their mouth, I think was just a serious mistake in terms of the ability of this administration to try and get their support. We had David Frum on earlier, uh, who uh, wrote a piece in The Atlantic. Uh, essentially, one of the, his points was how President Trump basically is only speaking to half the country. He's only speaking to the people who, you know, voted for him, who he believes will, will vote for him uh, again. And that was just very evident today in, you know, this moment of potential national unity and national kind of relief, uh, he, you know, chose it to kind of lay it on, attack President Obama and, uh, you know, uh, presidents going back to 79. I, this, this president, and one of the things that's concerned me from the beginning of this administration, uh, was not only rejecting the values of the presidency and how you behave, but failing to try and unify the country behind the president's policies. He's almost deliberately tried to split this country apart uh, and continues to do that, continues to only speak to his supporters. Uh, instead of trying to reach out and bring all of the American people uh, into uh, supporting what the administration is doing, uh, he is, he's wrapped up in a political campaign, almost a continuing political campaign. And in that mindset, all he cares about is whether or not uh, his supporters uh, continue to support him. And he continues to appeal to them rather than being big in that office and reaching out to all of the American people. I think that's a serious mistake. Secretary Panetta, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, a deadly mystery. Was it an accident or just perhaps something worse that led to the plane crash in Tehran that killed 176 people only hours after the Iranian missile attack? There's a growing concern over the cause of that Ukrainian airliner crash in Tehran only a few hours after Iranian missiles crashed into American positions inside Iraq. 
Authorities say all 176 people aboard the Boeing 737 were killed. What we don't know is whether it was an accident or something more sinister. With us now, Mary uh, Schiavo, a CNN aviation analyst and a former inspector general for the uh, Transportation Department. She's now uh, an attorney for victims and families in transportation accidents, including those involving Boeing. Uh, Mary, based on what you've seen so far, what, what stands out to you? Are there clues to suggest what may have happened? Well, I think this thing that stands out to me most of all was a change in the position. Um, at first, uh, there was a comment that it could be an engine, engine failure, et cetera, and then people changed their minds. And I think that probably suggests that what they looked at was the ACARS data, the data that is transmitted by the aircraft itself. And it had a normal takeoff, climb out. It had a good altitude gain, had good ground speed, and then all of a sudden went completely silent and no more data transmission. Obviously. That suggests something very catastrophic and probably not an engine failure. And it appears as if there wasn't a Mayday call. That's right, highly significant as well, because with an engine failure, there are very established and trained for procedures. Uh, the pilots have fire bottles, which they will uh, set off to put out to extinguish a fire in the engine. They'll call uh, air traffic control and, um, and request emergency clearance. The, the routes will be cleared for them, and they'll head right back to the airport. No mayday call suggests whatever happened happened instantaneously and catastrophically. It's said to be, I think, a difficult airport to 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 fly in and and out of. It requires training. Apparently, from what I've read, that these pilots were experienced with it. Yeah, I see no indication that the pilots had made errors flying into and out of the airport. And if they had a problem, for example, gaining altitude, we would have seen that on the flight radar data. And it doesn't look like that at all. It got. Uh, uh, you know, fine climb, um, altitude, uh, ground speed, uh, and it, it looked like a completely normal takeoff. The fact that there was military activity in Iran uh, and, you know, the missile attacks into Iraq, it's obviously uh, either a coincidence or it, it you know, there, there is some, some linkage there in some way. Well, and statistically speaking, when an airplane uh, literally explodes in the sky, when you have an in-flight breakup, especially with a fire, statistically it has usually been a missile, a bomb, or an explosion. But there are a few notable exceptions. TW-800 back in 1996 was a center fuel tank explosion. And uh, Chalks Ocean Airways was a wing coming off. And there is an airwindness directive on this plane for the wing attachment. So there are notable exceptions for mechanical failures, but usually it has been explosion, bomb, missile when a plane falls from the sky. And you know, always we talk about the black boxes. Your Iranian government has said that they will not turn over the black boxes, which apparently have been located and won't work with uh, either the U.S. government or with the manufacturer, which I believe is, is Boeing. Um, again, you, one can read that with as there's nefarious reasons for that or, you know, distrust and other political reasons. Or uh, unfamiliarity with how an Annex 13 International Civil Aviation Organization investigation really works. And that is you deliver the black boxes securely and safely to a black box lab that is capable of downloading and really identifying and working with the data. Um, they don't routinely just give them back to the manufacturers. They get them to the lab. Now, the best labs are, of course, in U.S., Canada, France, Britain, um, Australia, and others. Um, so I, if I 
I was certainly leading the investigation, I would want to call in one of these black box lab experts if I wasn't going to use the NTSB. But according to the Annex 13 ICAO uh, guidelines, the country of manufacture of the aircraft is a part of the investigation, mm -hmm. so that would be irregular. Um, you know, certainly they could call in Canada. They have a great investigation bureau, and there were so many Canadians on board. That yeah, would make sense. That would. Mary, appreciate it. Thanks. More, uh, more to learn, obviously. Thank you. Coming up, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is still holding on to the two articles of impeachment passed in mid-December ahead of the state of play tonight on their transmission to the Senate. I want to check in with Chris, see what he's working on for Cuomo Prime Time. Chris? How are you doing, Coop? We're taking it from simple to complicated uh, tonight. We have lawmakers on both sides uh, who are very upset on, uh, about these briefings today. Why? Simple. If it's such a simple case, why hasn't it been made? Why hasn't the president given us a stitch of proof of why this was necessary? Because if we don't learn from the process, the process will be repeated. And this kind of brinkmanship is no way to do diplomacy. It's no way to keep the country safe. So we're going to go through that. We're going to have experts from the region say why they believe this isn't over. And we're going to look at that plane crash, what's worth speculating on, what is not. Mm. All right. Six minutes from now, Chris. Look forward to it. Just ahead with the showdown with Iran now on hold or maybe at least a pause. Tension on Capitol Hill turning to impeachment and the question, will House Speaker Nancy Pelosi send the articles of impeachment to the Senate as early as tomorrow? Look at that ahead. Even Senate Democrats appear ready for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to release the articles of impeachment voted on last year. With her fight against Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell over trial rules at an impasse, several Democratic senators today told CNN it's time to begin the trial, hopefully next week, according to Senator Chris Murphy. California Senator Dianne Feinstein told Politico, quote, the longer it goes on, the less urgent it becomes. So if it's serious and urgent, send them over. If it isn't, don't send it over. Phil Maddenly joins us now from Capitol Hill. So uh, now that the speaker is starting to face criticism from inside her own party, what are your sources telling you about her next steps? Yeah, Anderson, it's remarkable in a building, the Capitol, where just about everything leaks out, sometimes within minutes, uh, from closed-door meetings and briefings, that no one really knows what the speaker plans to do. Even her closest advisors, her closest leadership uh, members don't have an explanation or an answer as to when the articles will head over. But you hit on a key point here. Senate Democrats are running out of patience. I'm told multiple Democratic senators have told Democratic leader Chuck Schumer to communicate to the speaker that the time is now to transmit the articles. The idea of holding them for, for a period of time has served its purpose. Obviously, more stories have leaked out. John Bolton is willing to testify if subpoenaed. That has been effective to a degree and effective in setting a message about what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is trying to do. But one Democratic senator told me today, Anderson, we've reached the point of diminishing returns. This needs to come over now. The expectation is still that they will likely come over this week, but no one knows for sure. Tomorrow, the House votes on an Iran war powers resolution. Is that expected to play uh, into this at all? I mean, how, how is that expected to play out and could it impact the speaker's decision on impeachment? Yeah, Anderson, one of the most interesting elements of this entire week is how much really members in both parties, in both chambers, have tried as best they can to separate these two issues. They understand the gravity of both of them. They understand the necessity of dealing with both of them, but they are trying to keep them separate. The War Powers Resolution tomorrow, which would halt Iran, uh, would halt the U.S. from uh, hostilities towards Iran uh, unless they came back to Congress, will pass, and it will pass overwhelmingly. But at this point, keeping it separate from impeachment, Anderson. Phil Maddenly, thanks very much. Appreciate it. News continues. Want to hand over to Chris for Cuomo Prime Time. Chris?